Mark chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, we have a chair Bible that's under the chairs. You can find Mark chapter 2 on page 786. And when you get there, can you please stand to your feet? We're going to honor God's word by standing when the word of God is read. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who had followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for this gathering together on this Lord's Day, where we as brothers and sisters in Christ can join together and worship you. God, we thank you that we're able to worship you through singing songs of praise and thanksgiving. God, we're grateful that we can also offer worship to you through prayer and through fellowship. God, we're also grateful that we can offer Worship to you as we listen to your word and we receive your word and we apply your word. So God, we ask that today you would use your word to help make us worshipers. That your word would stir in each of our hearts a deeper affection for Christ and a deeper love for you, our God. We pray, Lord, that our worship would extend into every area of our lives. That like Paul commends the church at Rome, we would offer our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, which is our spiritual worship. So God, would you use your word to do mighty things in and among your people today? And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Please be seated. Who did Jesus come for? That's the central question that the text that we have read together this morning is going to supply an answer to. Who did Jesus come for? That's also the title of this morning's sermon. Well, similar, the title is similar. It's who Jesus came for. But again, that's the central question that you and I are going to have answered for us through this story of the calling of this man, Levi, and the party that takes place at his house. Who did Jesus come for? The answer is given to us very directly at the end of the passage in verse 17. You can look down and see it there in your Bible, but Jesus says very directly here, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So who did Jesus come for? The answer, according to verse 17, is sinners. Jesus came for sinners. And for church folks like us, that's just business as usual. 
doesn't sound too shocking or surprising. I mean, that fits very neatly within our categories of thought and within our theological understanding. But you need to know, and we're going to understand in this passage, that for people in Jesus' day, and particularly for the religious folks in Jesus' day, that answer was scandalous. That Jesus would come for sinners. You can sense that from the question that the scribes of the Pharisees Ask Jesus' disciples in verse 16. Look at it. They say this. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The question is not asked in the sense that they're inquiring for information that they are lacking. It is asked rhetorically as a way of essentially condemning the activity of Jesus. Why does he do this? Why is he associating with tax collectors And sinners, this was unthinkable to them. And so when they see Jesus doing this, associating with sinners, their response is, how dare he? How could he? What is wrong with this Jesus? Now, for us to really understand what's behind this, we need to know something of the category of people that are here called sinners and their categorical equals, people called sinners tax collectors. In short, we need to know something of this man called Levi. Our passage begins with Jesus calling this Levi to become one of his disciples. And in calling Levi to become one of Jesus's followers, you need to understand that Jesus here is inviting the worst of the worst of Jewish society to now become his disciple. Let's read the text again at least the first couple of verses, and consider it together. Here's Mark chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, the setting of our story here today is the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is operating right now in his ministry from a town called Capernaum, which is situated on the sea. And Jesus is now down by the shore of this sea. And once again, the swarming crowds are coming to Jesus. What we've been learning so far in the book of Mark is that the people could not get enough of Jesus of Nazareth. He's healing people. He's teaching as one with authority. And the masses of people are astonished and enamored with Jesus. And so they come to Jesus on the seashore. And we find Jesus once again doing what he came to do. You see it right there in the text. Jesus is teaching them. Now Levi is not a part of the swarming crowds. No, when we find Levi introduced in our story, Levi's busy at work. He's sitting at his tax booth. But honestly, Levi couldn't have joined the crowds even if he wanted to. Levi, we find here, was a tax collector. Jesus could have hardly chosen a worse and more despised person in Jewish society than a tax collector. Now, I highly doubt, I can't prove this to you, but I highly doubt that tax collectors have ever been well-liked in any culture. 
right? I mean, who here loves paying taxes? Sure, you guys take some of my income away. Go ahead. You get it before God even gets it. I can't even tithe yet. The government just takes it. None of us love paying taxes. And just imagine, though, if it wasn't just like taken out of your check or every time you swipe your card and you buy something, the sales taxes are automatically taken. Imagine if there was a person whose job it was to physically come to your house and demand that you pay your taxes. How much would you look forward to that visit? Oh, the tax collector's coming today. Let's cook up a nice meal for him. This is wonderful. He's coming. We would hate that. It wouldn't be much of a move for us to begin to actually hate him and despise this guy who comes and takes and takes and takes away from you. But friends, it gets so much worse for Levi, the tax collector. See, you need to understand that tax collectors like Levi were Jews who went to work for the Roman government. They were employed by the Roman government and they made their living off of the money that they could charge above the taxes that the government required. So if there was a tax being levied on you for 5%, the tax collector would say, I'm going to charge you 9% or whatever rate I want. And they would collect that money from you and they would send the 5% back to the government and they would live off the other 4%, 6%, 8%, whatever they determined. Because of this, extortion and corruption were rampant. So what this means is that tax collectors are working for the enemy and they're ripping off their own people to line their own pockets. And the presentation that we have of tax collectors in the New Testament is that these are wealthy people generally. I mean, think of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. He is filthy rich. They were just exploiting the people like crazy. And so tax collectors were viewed as traitors and as sellouts. They were viewed as irredeemable. In the eyes of most Jews, they looked at them and said, hey, they made their bed, now they've got to sleep in it. They can't be a part of kosher Jewish society. And so they were excluded from the synagogue. In fact, the rabbis taught that if a tax collector entered into a home... Every person inside of that house became unclean. That's how despised these people were. If you wanted to maintain your social status, you better not hang out with tax collectors. We talked about cooties with leprosy a couple of weeks ago, but the same was true with tax collectors. Their cooties would rub off on you. You would suddenly become a tainted person. You would become unclean. And so friends, here is Levi sitting at his tax booth. He's set up on the road so that he could collect customs or taxes off of all of the goods and services that are going in and out of the town of Capernaum. And he's sitting at his tax booth and he's watching as the crowds of people are gathered around Jesus and as Jesus is standing there teaching the people from the word of God on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He sees that the people are hanging on every word that comes out of Christ's mouth. He, like everyone else in town, has heard of Jesus. We've already read in chapter 1 that the fame of Jesus was spreading everywhere. That Jesus had done so many miracles in Capernaum that people are bringing everybody who's sick, everyone who's demon-possessed to Jesus. And so Levi here had heard of Jesus. And we don't know But it's certainly possible that Levi is within earshot 
of Jesus himself as Jesus is standing here teaching. And it makes you wonder, what was Jesus teaching on on this sunny afternoon in Capernaum? What was the sermon content? Wouldn't be far-fetched to imagine that part of it was tailor-fit for a guy like Levi. Well, at any rate, after the teaching, Jesus and his disciples pass through the crowd and they walk right up to Levi, sitting at his tax booth. Levi is likely so taken aback that he's at a loss for words. He doesn't know what to say. But that's okay. It's not his place to speak anyhow. Jesus knows exactly what he intends to say to this man. He looks Levi square in his eyes and he says to him, follow me. Jesus only needed two words to communicate something to this man that would change his life and his destiny forever. Because the verse tells us, verse 14, and he rose and followed him. And boy, did he change Levi's life and destiny. Some of you know this already, but Levi's other name is Matthew. Matthew is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Matthew wrote the gospel of Matthew. Matthew's story has been told over and over and over again for 2,000 years on every continent on planet earth. Everything changed for this man with two words. Two words spoken out of the authoritative mouth of Jesus the Christ. Jesus says to him, follow me. Now this call of Levi sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? For those of us who have been studying the gospel of Mark. Back in chapter 1, Jesus called his first four disciples, who were two sets of brothers, all who were fishermen. And they were there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus is right now. And Jesus looks at them, and he says to them, follow me. His call was short, but it was clear, and it was compelling. And those four fishermen dropped their nets, left the business, and got up and followed Jesus. And now here is Jesus again. Same location and same call. He looks at Levi now. And he says, follow me. It's significant for us that the first five disciples that Jesus calls are all called in that same way. Jesus calls them to become disciples by calling them to follow him. And this reminds us that discipleship to Jesus is fundamentally about following Jesus. It's an active pursuit. There is a contrast here between the crowds of people and the disciples of of Jesus. The crowds listened to the teaching of Jesus, but disciples followed him. That's the distinction Disciples are those who follow Jesus. Being a Christian is not simply adhering to a set of beliefs. Oh yeah, yeah, I believe that, I accept that. It's about a relationship with the triune God through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's about actively pursuing him and knowing him and living as if he is the Lord and you are not. Because guess what? He is the Lord and you are not. And so being a disciple is a person who acknowledges that and says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Could it be said of you that you are following Jesus? 
Again, I'm not asking, do you accept certain things about Christianity or certain things from the Bible to be true? I'm asking you, could it be said of you and of your life that you are actively pursuing Jesus? That you are living your life, again, as if he is Lord and you are not. It had been years since this man, Levi, had been invited into polite Jewish society. Day after day, his experience was such that he was used to people cursing at him and swearing at him. And here is the most sought after person in the entire community, this Jesus of Nazareth, walking up to him of all people and inviting him to join his ranks. How shocking this must have been for this man. How quick and sudden was his yes? Are you serious, Jesus? I want to follow you. How could this be? How could Jesus be interested in this man? Well, we're about to find out because in verse 15, the scene is going to shift from a tax booth to a table. Look again at verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. I so love what happens here. What happens here is this man, Levi, is so overwhelmed with gratitude for what Jesus had just done that he looks at his life and he says, man, what can I do to bless him? See, again, we've got to understand that in welcoming him, Jesus has restored much of the dignity and the worth in this man's life that others had diminished over the years. And again, Levi feels unbelievably humbled by this and grateful. So he's looking at his life and he's saying to himself, what can I do for Jesus? And he has an answer to that. As I mentioned earlier, Levi was a man of means. He obviously has a big home because it has the capacity to host a humongous dinner party here. We know that Jesus and his disciples are invited in verse 15, but there's also many tax collectors and sinners that are reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So he has a big home. He's a man of means. And knowing that, he says, I know what I'll do. I'm going to host a feast and make Jesus the guest of honor. Scholars point out that in a normal dinner, people would sit. But whenever somebody would recline, which is the, the word used here for the disciples and for Jesus and the other guests, that spoke of a feast. And so Levi here is having a feast in Jesus's honor. Luke's gospel tells us this way in Luke 5.29 that Levi made him a great feast in his house. So he's invited lots of people and he's not ordering for them Rusty's Pizza. He's catering a delicious, extravagant feast. He wants to bless the Lord who has graciously brought blessing to him. One of the signs that you've truly grasped God's grace in your life is the presence of gratitude. That you feel grateful for what God is doing for you and what God has done for you. And that from that gratitude flows a desire to say, what do I have in my life that I can bring to the Lord? How can I bless the one who has blessed me with so much? It's a great spiritual litmus test whether or not your heart is overflowing with gratitude. Levi's was. 
He hosts this party in Jesus' honor. The disciples are there. Jesus is there. But don't lose sight of the other kinds of people who were invited to dinner at Levi's on this night. It says many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Translation, Levi has invited many of his colleagues and his friends. The people that he knew. This is not respectable company that Jesus is keeping. Remember, according to the rabbis, if Jesus were to enter the house of a single tax collector, he would become unclean. What do you make then of a home filled with tax collectors that Jesus is going and eating in? The tax collectors aren't the only unsavory people at the party. There are also many sinners And it's here that we're really getting now to the heart of the scandal of what Jesus is doing. Sinners is a term that refers to the really deplorable members of Jewish society. There is a little bit of debate about this. Some people think that it's just referring to any common Jew. People who were not Pharisees like the Pharisees. But that can't be the case because if that was all that that word intended, then Jesus and his disciples would also be included among that term sinners. But there's a distinction here. They don't have a problem per se with Jesus and his disciples. They have a problem with the sinners that they're associating with. So it's a reference to the deplorable members of Jewish society. This is prostitutes. This is criminals. This is the people who had done things that were so wrong and were living in such animosity against the law of Moses that they were just moral outcasts. People just looked down on them and shunned them and thought these are the people that have no chance with God. And yet, friends, this is the company that Jesus of Nazareth is is keeping. Let's not miss one important fact here, though. Many of these people these sinners, had also followed Jesus. You might have missed it there in the verse, so we'll just look at it one more time. Verse 15, it says, And as he he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. It's not quite right to say that Jesus is here hanging out with a bunch of non-believing party animals at Levi's house eating and drinking with them in hopes that he's going to win them to Christ. Which is how a lot of people want to share this story. It's better to understand the scene this way. That this man, Levi, is just one of a growing number of moral outcasts. People that the culture and the religious establishment had written off, who had been welcomed by Jesus... And had been invited to leave their former life and now become disciples and followers of his. But see, here's the rub. The Pharisees don't know that yet. For the Pharisees, all they can see is the kinds of people with the kinds of reputation that no respectable Jewish rabbi would ever have table fellowship with. We know these kinds of people. We know what they're like. We know their reputation. And what in the world is Jesus doing with their kind? And so they cannot remain silent. They ask a question in verse 16. It says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, 
Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees take issue over those that Jesus is eating with. This is somewhat true in our culture, but it was way more true in Jewish culture that to eat with somebody, particularly in their home, was a sign of intimate fellowship. I mean, even to this day, you don't just have anybody eat in your home. If you're usually meeting somebody for the first time, a colleague or something, you might go out for a meal or a cup of coffee. But when you have somebody in your home to eat, it's a sign of intimacy and friendship and acceptance. Well, that was so much more true in ancient Near Eastern culture. And so for Jesus to be having this meal with these people is communicating something about their relationship. That, that Jesus is actually willing to have intimacy and fellowship with people like this. It is, in a sense, a sign of Jesus' acceptance of these people. That he does not see them as complete moral rejects. That they are not outside of the scope of the people that he's willing to associate with. Now, we have a tendency of viewing the Pharisees as really, really awful people. The Pharisees are the bad guys. And I think that's justified because the ultimate assessment that you get from the Gospels is the Pharisees are kind of the bad guys. So it's understandable that we feel that way because Jesus is constantly in conflict with these guys. And he's just pointing out, you guys don't get it. And that's why you have animosity with me. But we need to understand that in this day and age, in Levi's day and age, the Pharisees were not viewed as the bad guys. You could hardly point to a group of people that were more respected in Jewish society than the Pharisees and the scribes that belonged to them. They were highly, highly respected. The Pharisees themselves had a very noble beginning. In the centuries before Jesus came, the Jewish people were in a really, really low place. First, they were taken captive by the Assyrians, and that was awful. Later, they were taken captive by the Babylonians. That was awful. Eventually, some of them made their way back to the Holy Land, and they did rebuild the temple, and they rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. But even after doing that, Israel was constantly under foreign occupation. They were ruled by different uh, regional powers for centuries to come. Long gone were the days of King David or his son King Solomon when Israel was this unified kingdom full of power and prosperity and peace. Those days were in the rearview mirror. For 400 years before Jesus, the Jewish people had received no revelation from God. Prophecies were rare. It became very clear to the Jewish people that God had withdrawn his hand of blessing during this period of their history. And they find themselves at the time of Christ under the iron fist of the Romans. Times were tough. Things were dark. Things were miserable for the Jews. And there were competing schools of thought on how we as the Jewish people can restore God's blessing to us again. Because God did bless us and he made a covenant with us. How do we get back to that place? We want to be blessed by God. And so there were some in Jewish, in Jewish culture, like the Zealots and others like them, who thought the answer is actually through political revolt. It's through attacking the powers and overthrowing these powers and, and restoring the physical kingdom of David. The Pharisees didn't see it that way. The Pharisees believed that the way for God's people to get back into God's favor 
was through personal holiness. They looked at it and they said, you know what the problem is? We've broken covenant with God and he's judging us. And so the way that we can fix all of this and get blessed by God again is if we obey the covenant once again, if we live lives of personal holiness. And so their focus initially was we seek to live lives as righteously as possible. We're going to look at the law of Moses and we're going to say we're not going to break any of that. We're going to live righteously. And that was a noble pursuit. After all, it was the sins of God's people that led to all the calamity that they were experiencing. And it is true that in the law of Moses, obedience leads to blessing. But over time, the Pharisees began to add additional rules on top of the law of Moses. This was called the tradition of the elders. And the reason for adding these other rules was to help safeguard themselves from sin. So this is how the Pharisees would see it. They would say, look, if sin is crossing this line right here. Okay, if I go over that line, I've transgressed, I've sinned. If that's what sin is, and we have these sins spelled out for us in the law of Moses, here's what we can do to make sure that we're righteous and that we restore God's blessing. Let's draw a new line right here. Because if the new line is here, and we tell everybody, if you go over that line, you're violating God's law, then there's really no chance anybody's going to go over this line and actually, truly, deeply break God's law. And so they sought to set up so many more safeguards around the law of God to prevent anyone from intentionally or unintentionally breaking the law of God. So with the Sabbath, for instance, in the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments, we are told that we need to honor the Sabbath. And there are some examples in the law of Moses of ways that you can violate the Sabbath, work that you can do on the Sabbath. And so Jews were not allowed to work in those certain days. This is a day of rest and worship of the Lord. The Pharisees come along and they go, let's create a whole long list of other things that can be considered work. And that way nobody accidentally breaks the law of Sabbath. And again, we can maintain our holiness and we can earn God's favor. And they create all of these different laws. And say, if you do any of that stuff, you're working and you're violating the Sabbath. And they just do this over and over and over again with the law of Moses. And they create, again, what's called the tradition of the elders. And ultimately, legalism. Legalism is what's underneath the structure that the Pharisees begin to build. It was one of the things that they used to try to live righteously. Another one of their tactics was that they separated themselves from the common people who didn't seek to live lives of holiness like they did. In fact, the the word Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word that means separated ones. The Pharisees were the separated ones. They looked at all the common Jews, the people who didn't want to be as serious as them, and they said, we can't be around you. We can't eat with you. You might not prepare food in perfectly kosher way so we just can't take that risk we can't associate with normal people we separate ourselves from all of you that's why even today if someone said to you quit acting like a pharisee they probably have in their mind the idea of like quit being so legalistic or having so many rules or quit thinking that you're better than everybody else comes from again the history of the pharisees 
But from the perspective of the common Jews, the Pharisees were the really holy ones. They looked out at the landscape of Jewish religious life and they said, these guys are on the top of the pyramid. These are the super spiritual. These guys are the elites. Jesus, though, comes on the scene and he says, in effect, what God says in the book of Samuel in the Old Testament. Man looks at outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. Jesus is capable of seeing underneath the surface. He's able to see that, yes, outwardly they look nice and tidy, but inwardly their hearts are far from God. And we see that on display in this text in Mark chapter 2. Rather than the Pharisees loving their hurting neighbors, the Pharisees despise their hurting neighbors. And for Jesus, the Christ, that is not okay. But now we can understand the issues that the Pharisees are taking with Jesus. The Pharisees don't know what to make of him yet. They know he speaks like nobody they've ever heard. They know that he is healing people. And so they don't know what to make of Jesus yet, but they cannot for the life of them understand why Jesus would associate with these people rather than separate himself like they do. Again, in verse 16, they say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the stage is now set for Jesus' shocking and insightful response. Look at verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, I personally, I love how the Pharisees, they ask the disciples of Jesus this insulting question. They don't go to Jesus directly. They ask the disciples, hey, why does your guy, why is your rabbi, why is he doing this? But then it's Jesus who directly answers it. It's like he looks at the disciples, he's like, no, 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 I got this one. I can take this one from here. Let me straighten this out for these guys. And Jesus looks right at these Pharisees. And he looks at them and he says, Guys, here's the thing healthy people don't need doctors. See, he turns to the field of medicine by way of analogy here. And again, he says to them something very obvious. He says, Healthy people don't need doctors, sick people do. Of course, Jesus isn't thinking here in physical terms. He introduces moral or spiritual categories with the righteous versus sinner distinction in verse 17. So Jesus is talking about spiritual sickness. But again, he's using this analogy to help us to get our heads around. And he says to these Pharisees, I came not to call the righteous or the healthy, but sinners or the sick. So Jesus' answer to their question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, is this. Because that's who I came for. That's it. That's my purpose. I came to save people in need. See, the Pharisees, they looked out at crowds of people like this in Levi's house on this day, and they saw the scum of society. Jesus looked at the exact same crowd of people, and he saw the mission field. He saw the people that God's heart was for. The Pharisees looked out at all these people in Levi's home, and they said to themselves, these people are so sick that we need to avoid them. 
Jesus looks at the same group of people and he says to himself, these people are so sick, I need to help them. I need to rescue them. My pastor growing up used to say that the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. And I love that. It's so true. It's not a place for everybody who's got it right to just come and keep getting it right together. It's a place for people who are lost, people who are broken, people who are hurting to come and find Jesus, the great physician, who can heal them and restore them and make things right for them again. And church history is tragically littered with examples of Christians behaving like Pharisees. Of Christians looking down on the people in our community who don't live up to our moral standards. Being unwilling to associate with people who might taint our reputations. Looking at them and having our hearts turned away from them rather than having our hearts turned toward them in compassion. And so friends, it's important for us this morning that we do sit for a moment here with these words of Jesus. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Brothers and sisters, are are there categories of people in our society that you view the way the Pharisees viewed sinners? By that I mean people that are irredeemable. People that are too toxic and tainted for a respectable Christian like you to ever, ever be seen associating with. We all have to sit with that. We all have our prejudices. I would ask you this morning, how does your heart feel toward the gay community? Or the trans community? What do you think of people who are working in the adult film industry? Or of doctors in our city who are performing abortions? Or members of Hamas that are murdering innocent women and children? Now, to be very clear, I'm not suggesting that we should feel good about what they have done or what they are doing. No, we should loathe and mourn over what they're doing. I'm not asking that question, though. The question I'm asking is, how does your heart feel toward or about the people? The people themselves. Can your heart this morning... Get behind a Jesus who says, I came for her. I came for him. Yes, they are very, very, very sick, but I am a very, very great physician. Can our hearts get to that place where nobody is irredeemable, where nobody is so wicked and so lost and so evil that they are unworthy of being viewed as a human and that we see them as somehow outside of the scope of the mission of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you want to see these kinds of people come to Jesus? Let me ask this differently. Do you want them worshiping together with you in our church? sitting right next to you on Sunday morning? Do you want them calling you brother or sister 
And maybe this is the most probing of all it was for me. Would you want to be the person? Would you be willing to be the person that God used to reach them with the gospel? Because I think a lot of us go, man, it'd be awesome if Hamas got saved. Some of those guys over there. Or if some porn star was delivered out of that lifestyle and she got saved or he got saved. That would be great. But I don't want to be around a person like that. Maybe 10 years into their discipleship when they've grown and matured and they've refined some of those rough edges. I don't want to be the missionary reaching that person. Jesus was the missionary reaching that person. He's sitting here going after rescuing the dregs of the society morally. And he's pulling these people out. He's a doctor who is healing the sick. But it's the Pharisees who didn't have a category for that. It's the Pharisees who looked at that kind of a mission and said, that's way too scandalous for me. But it was not too scandalous for Jesus. And so, let us then be reminded this morning together, family of God, of the heart of Christ. That when Christ was asked, why in the world are you sharing a meal with those people? His answer was, because that's who I came for. I'm here for them. Let us learn then from this text to never look down our noses at anyone, ever. Let us never see a person, no matter how wicked and heinous their life is, and think that they are somehow outside of the scope of Christ's mission. Let us instead welcome them with the love of Christ and call them to follow him in faith and repentance, because that's what he came for. Now, before we close, we have to pick up on the irony of the statement of Jesus in verse 17. The irony is this. The Pharisees and everybody else had no problem whatsoever seeing that tax collectors and sinners were spiritually sick people. But nobody in this story is sicker than the Pharisees. Spiritually, they are the sickest of all. Notice with me that we learn in verse 17, not only who Jesus came for, i.e. sinners, but we also notice who Jesus did not come for. I came not to call the righteous. We find out who Jesus did not come for. Now, in saying the righteous here, Jesus does not have in mind people who are perfectly righteous, who have always ever kept God's law perfectly throughout their life. The reason he doesn't have those people in mind is because those people don't exist. The only one to faithfully obey God's law every single time is Jesus himself, the Savior. So he doesn't have those people in mind. The Bible's very clear that there is none righteous, no, not one. So Jesus is not talking about the perfectly righteous who just don't have a use for him. No, no, no. In context, he's referring to the Pharisees and anyone who thinks like them. See, the Pharisees, as I was pointing out earlier, were the ones who were considered the most righteous in Jewish society. And from a certain point of view, they were. They meticulously obeyed the law of God. Even Jesus could say this about the Pharisees in Matthew 5.20. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching his disciples and he says to them, For I tell you, unless your righteousness 
exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So clearly, the word on the street was, those are the elite guys. They're the really righteous, really moral guys. And Jesus says, unless you're more righteous than they are, heaven's not for you. The Pharisees were in the category of righteous, and they knew it, and they disdained the people that were in the category sinners. But again, the Pharisees weren't perfectly righteous. That's why Jesus says your righteousness actually has to exceed theirs to go to heaven. They're not there yet. They've got chinks in the armor as well. Sure, it looks like if anybody's going to get to heaven on their own righteousness, it's those guys. And Jesus says, nope, not a chance. Nobody is perfectly righteous outside of Christ. The irony in the statement, the thing that Jesus is really driving at, that he's getting at here, is that the the Pharisees were self-righteous. The Pharisees saw themselves in, in the analogy as those who were well and had no need to call a doctor. They saw themselves as righteous and in no need of a savior. And this is the kind of person that Jesus did not come for. The person who fails to see that they are in need of Jesus. A person who sees themselves as healthy will never call for a doctor. And so what can Jesus do for that kind of a person? This is not the only time Jesus will bring together a Pharisee and a tax collector to make this point. In Luke 18, we have the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Here's the beginning of it in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, self-righteousness, and treated others with contempt. I mean, this is just perfectly hitting on what we're talking about today. Here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Polar opposites on the moral spectrum. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this way. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. See that list? That's called sinners. Or, he says, so he's praying to God. Or even like this tax collector. This is where he's at. He's deceived, he's self-righteous and proud. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so we find... In Mark chapter 2, that the words of Jesus here divide every single person into two groups. On the one hand is the group of people who see themselves as so well that they have no need for a doctor. And the other group is people who see themselves as so sick that they desire a doctor. Do you sense your need for a savior? Do you believe you need God's grace and forgiveness? If your answer is yes, then you need to know Jesus came for the likes of you. Don't care where you've been. Don't care what you've done. Jesus came for people just like you. And what a word of relief that is for anyone who's ever come to grips 
with their own failures, their own sins, their own shame. The reason the gospel has resonated so powerfully with untold millions of people throughout the ages is is because it offers hope to us as we really are. It takes a tenacious pride and self-delusion to look in the mirror and to say to yourself, I'm good enough. I have nothing to atone for. I'm better than the next guy. I owe no apologies. And that will never soothe your conscience. And that will never lead to a beautiful life marked by humility and love and other-centeredness. And so Jesus offers us a better way. Jesus says, no matter how bad you are and you know how bad you've been, I'm here for you. No matter how deep your sin runs, he says, my grace runs deeper still. You don't have to hide. You don't have to look in the mirror and lie to yourself. You don't have to project something that you're not. Jesus says, you can come clean with me. I'm perfectly comfortable around the morally bankrupt. I came for tax collectors and prostitutes and murderers. So I can handle your mess too. Your sin cannot generate more wrath than my death exhausted. At the cross, for every single person who puts their faith in this Jesus, his words ring true. It is finished. And so every person has to answer the question, who am I aligned with? The self-righteous or the sinners? Because Jesus makes it perfectly clear who he came for. Would you please pray with me? God, we thank you today for this revelation of your heart for this world. God, we thank you that in this passage, we're, we're confronted with the scandalous reality that those that ultimately are going to belong to you in heaven are not those who get there on their own. Not those who measure up. Not those who have done it all right. Only those who are capable of seeing their own brokenness, seeing their own sin for what it truly is and the ways that it's hurt other people around them. It's only for those who are capable of seeing that they need a Savior. And Jesus, we thank you that you have opened our eyes to see that we don't have it all together. That by your grace, you walked up to us just like this man, Levi, and you called us to follow you. We didn't earn it. We'll never earn it. It was pure grace. And so as your children today and as your disciples today, we just want to say how grateful we are. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. And Lord, would you help us this week to live in light of your grace and actually put it on display to the the hurting and needy people around us, God, for your glory and for their good. In Jesus' name, amen.